Hey, we've got your chance to win tickets to another music festival. Bourbon and Beyond happens September 14th, 15th, 16th, and 17th in Louisville, Kentucky at the Highland Festival Grounds and features performances from folks like Brandy Carlisle, Train, Buddy Guy, Mavis Staples, The Killers, Duran Duran, Gaslight Anthem, Wayne Newton, The Black Keys, The Black Crows, The Avett Brothers, Old Crow Medicine Show and Spoon, Bruno Mars, Blondie. Do I need to keep going? There's a whole bunch more. Uh, keep listening for your chance to win tickets and find out more at bourbonandbeyond.com or click the link in the show notes. Don't go to sleep, mother. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it is Murdoch. Welcome rock and roll bedtime <laughs> stories everybody hope you're having a great time and thanks so much for listening to the show it's your first time like strap in and this is gonna be a bummer i guess right i mean we've we've got a lot of letters about this one story and listen you guys drive the show you you send us letters and and we we brian does a ton of research about this and i do a little bit of it and he gets the king for being the mega research that i consider to be like dr dr brian at this point <laughs> there's some things you're uncovering that Doc- it's like it's it's just fascinating sometimes well and you I'm know like, what? The, the doctor gets to give good news sometimes the doctor has to give bad news sometimes uh when he does his research right and we you're right we we are the story guys at gmail.com that's how people get involved in the show and we've gotten multiple uh just an ongoing clamor for an episode about the band badfinger I mean, I'll just, right. we'll just go ahead and say this is you. Here's one from Rufus. Rufus writes, "You've mentioned a couple times the song Without You' by Badfinger in past episodes, but you've not covered the story of that band. I think you could file it under royally fucked over by the industry. Yes, I think that would right. that that's, would be appropriate. That's, that's a thing. Uh, there's another one, Mailman Jeff. I don't know if uh, you know, but there is a mailman named Jeff who listens to this show and signs his letters, Mailman Jeff." What's up? Uh, I think you guys would absolutely crush a rock and roll bedtime story episode about Badfinger. Blessed with George Harrison and the Beatles. Help these blokes wrote some of classic rock's most classic songs and then bad deals, etc. I don't want to spoil it. Um, bad things happen to them, but I would love for you guys to serve up the sad tale that is Badfinger. All the best, mailman Jeff. Uh, so this one, I, honestly, it's been on the list of potential episodes for a really long time. And you know this, like you know, behind the scenes here, there is a, a schedule and we plot sort of what we're working on and we're doing different things. And at a certain point, this one has gotten moved multiple times. <laughs> like there's been so many times where you're like, okay, so bad finger. And I'm like, no, we're doing something else. Um, but we're, yeah, we're, when it's like, we all, it's like, Hey, we should do that episode about ZZ top and the sheep. You know what I mean? Like right, that's going right. to get bumped, bumped ahead of bad finger just because of what, what, um, so those things are what are more interesting, but Badfinger is a band that a lot of people don't know a lot about. They're like, oh yeah, that song. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, you know, it's one of those bands because they like over here in America, very different probably than in the UK, but still like they were a flash. And this story, just trigger warning is depressing as shit. So just be ready for that. But wait, I, how did you even learn about Badfinger? like what was your exposure to them so at, at some point once once i started just collecting records and trying to get records i figured out you could go to yard sales mm-hmm. and buy records and people and people would just have 45s they wouldn't be in their sleeves or anything right on and so 
So I discovered like that's how I discovered some Beatles B sides, like the Battle of John and Yoko was a B side, and oh, yeah. you know my name. Look up the number, and I remember getting a whole bunch of Apple records, like they were all had the Apple label, and then there was one that wasn't, and it was Badfinger, and so that's how I discovered what Bad. And so I just was like, oh, they must be like friends of the Beatles. Well, and so yeah, sort of. I thought that I thought they were just contemporaries, so that was it. I I remember recognizing at one point that no matter what wasn't a Beatles song like that was I was like wait so if it's not the Beatles who is it that was my entry into Badfinger yeah and then Harry Nielsen thought that without you was a Beatles song when Mm. he heard it and now Harry Nielsen has made that like you know into oh so the famous story about that is that he was fucked up when he heard that song a friend of his played it for him and the next morning he woke up looking for it in the guy's record collection and he was going through all the Beatles records, playing each track one by one, trying to find it. And the guy, and he was like, where is that John Lennon song? And the guy was like, oh, no, 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 no. That's this band called Badfinger. So, you know, I'm in good company getting them confused. And this becomes a thing, right? Like, as a historical artifact, this the whole existence of this band is a real thought exercise around proximity to other people's success. Like, if you kind of boil it down, Here's the question. If you're a rock band in the late 60s, is it actually a good idea to let the Beatles be your champion? Like, do you actually want that? Like, you think you do, right? I mean, because this sounds like a bizarre question to ask because obviously you'd be like, yeah, give me, I mean, these are the biggest rock stars of all time. Please put me in their corner. But I don't know if you actually want it, especially after you hear this story. You might, if you were given the choice, choose differently than you think you would. Right. And... The reason why you come to that realization so quickly, everybody, is that after you hear the story the first time, it's like, well, what was the the next band that the Beatles? Oh, there was there was no there was no other band. This was well, I mean, sort of. They and they crafted them so really like the taking the under the wing thing is really a thing. They named them like the Beatles and their associates were part of like around this, and they were called the Ivies initially. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, Neil got them to change their name in a nod to some Beatles lore. Yeah, dude, uh, this story, the lore that this references, Badfinger, for some reason makes me laugh my face off. So, like, if, if you look around in the Beatles camp, there's a couple, like, that was a term they just, like, made up and would use with each other. And there, depending on which Beatle you ask, there are different uh, origins for this, right? George Harrison once said that it was the name of a stripper that they knew, which I definitely don't think is true. Um, but I like this story the best. The The story that most people agree on is that Badfinger comes from Lennon, John Lennon, sitting at the piano, piecing together the melody for what becomes With a Little Help from My Friends, which, With a Little Help from My Friends, is basically a writing exercise that McCartney and Lennon do to create something for Ringo. And Ringo has no range. So it's literally like right. a exercise where they have to be like, okay, we can only we have to stay. The vocal in this song has to stay within this certain area, and right. so it, you know they're like sort of testing how much they can write on command, right? And so they're they're messing around with this. And the story goes that John Lennon is 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 pounding out the melody on piano, but he had messed up his forefinger. Something had happened to it, and it was painful for him to use his forefinger. So he was using his middle finger. Oh, you, uh, right. So he's using his middle finger to pound out the melody, and thus they called the song when they were writing it, in the writing phase, not with a little help from my friends. They called it Bad Finger Boogie. That's right. 
Yeah. I find that fucking hilarious for some reason. Uh, but yeah. that's what, you know, literally what happens, you already referenced this, like when they're talking, when the Beatles camp is trying to figure out how to craft Badfinger to be more successful, you know, the band is called the Ivies, and they come up there like, oh, let's use this term we made up, Badfinger. But, you know, they weren't like the Backstreet Boys or like this manufactured thing. They, the Beatles weren't the first people to actually be interested in them. No, they were playing. They were musicians. They're playing gigs. Okay, that's a really good point that you're making. If doing, you, and, and and they were at times doing covers of other bands. They're like cover band. So one of the letters referenced, I think it's Mailman Jeff referenced this idea that there was a lot of bad luck involved, right? And that is one of the versions of this story that you will hear if someone is to tell it to you. They'll they'll usually say one of two things or a combination of two things. They'll say they were very unlucky. Or they were very bad at picking people to associate themselves with on the business end. And, and both of those things are sort of true. It, but the first guy that they take up with, who will be with them for most of the ride, is this guy named Bill Collins. They meet him out of the audience at a local gig. Um, he's quite a bit older than them. And it's in 66, and he had been, like, he used to play around in dance bands. And, like, he was always sort of, like, one of these guys that was around the music industry but never was really around the success. But he says... I think I can help you be successful. And so he creates a really sketchy deal for them to sign that gives him 20% after the cost. So it basically makes him a full member in terms of how the money is split up. Uh, But he does, I mean, he does some stuff to sort of earn his keep, especially at the beginning. He lets them live with him. And apparently this guy just let a lot of people live with him. And in the house living with him at the same time is Dave Duffield. And if you're a real head, you know that Dave Duffield was working with the Kinks as their road manager. And so through this, Badfinger, well, the Ivies, uh, catch the attention of Ray Davies. And Ray Davies from the Kinks actually produces a three-song demo for them in 67. Gets it in front of CBS Records, and CBS Records decides they don't want to sign them. But it's also through Bill that the band will meet another important person, uh, a guy named Mal Evans. Bill invites Mal Evans to see the band play at uh, the Marquee in London. And of all my favorite people that are associates or around the sphere of the Beatles, Mal is my guy, and I find him the most interesting. So, but anyway, so they go, we'll get we'll get to Mal. But um, so there's still the Ivies, and they're a cover band, and they play Beatles songs. And so Mal becomes a fan, and then. Peter Asher is with him at the marquee one night and they see Badfinger and Asher surprisingly, he's not impressed at all. So it's said that Mal personally plays Badfinger for each individual beetle to get them excited about them. That that's, that's how Badfinger really got connected was, was Mal did it. Yeah. I, and you're right when you say that Mal's like your favorite of the associates. Like, he is sort of this lumbering goofball. Like, that's sort of the feeling you get when you read about him and hear about the stuff that he does. But the reason he's excited about them and the reason he brings him to the Beatles goes back to this whole thing about Apple Records, which we've talked about before on the show. And this is where we get sort of this episode sort of becomes an unofficial companion piece to episode 149, where we talked about the Beatles catalog. Because Apple Records becomes a big part of this whole conversation. And, and Mal, we've talked about him because he's in India with them. And he's always sort of around them, right? So we, he's definitely been mentioned on the show before, I think. But 
it's it's funny because we talked. You mentioned this, like right, like of all the people that were hanging around the Beatles, we assign this legendary status to the Beatles, and, and they definitely deserve it. But because we do that, I think that sometimes we forget that like they were also just like a normal band at the beginning who did what bands to this day do, which is recruit friends and people around them to fill in the spaces. Like in their early days, they are conducting interviews to see who's going to haul amps. Right? They're just like who can help, and they grab the people who can help. Uh, and you know, that's how they assemble this group that ends up really influencing their trajectory for quite a while. Right. And, and Mal was just a telephone engineer and he really liked Elvis because who wouldn't? And so he ended up at the freaking cavern club one well, day. And here's a quote that I found where he, he says, quote, I walked down this little street called Matthew street that I never even noticed before. And I came to this place called the cavern club and I'd never been inside a club before, but I heard music coming out. And it sounded like real rock. It sort of sounded like Elvis. He literally says, like, it sounded like my favorite thing, Elvis. And so I paid the money and I went into the club. And then he becomes friendly with George. This is the whole deal. And George will suggest that Mal should be the doorman for the freaking Cavern Club. And he becomes a Beatles associate. And then three weeks later, Epstein will decide that they need another set of hands to help manage their affairs because it's a small little circle. And they ask Mel to join the team. Right. It, it's it's all really pretty wild that it's just a matter of right place, right time, sort of, for this. And, and to illustrate the level to which the Fab Four end up depending on him, this is a quote I found where George is talking about Mal. He says, he had a bag that he developed over the years because it would always be, hey, Mal, have you got an elastoplast? Hey, Mal, have you got a screwdriver? Hey, Mal, have you got a bottle of this? Have you got a bottle of that? And he always had everything. And if he didn't have it, he would get it for you very quickly. And so Mal is so important. Eventually, they let him do whatever he wants to some degree. How many people on Earth can say, I played on a Beatles record? Mal mm-hmm. did. He's the anvil on Maxwell's Silver, Silver Hammer. <laughs> And he's the guy, everybody, that does the countdown in between the two parts of a day in the life. That's that smell. He's and eventually he yeah. plays the anvil. Like you know, it's like he just they just found Seven, like random shit for six, him to do. Yeah. Five. And it's got all that reverb on it. It's like so crazy. It's like the trippiest part of the song is Mal, right? But anyway, so then he gets to be a producer, and this is how this all connects together with Badfinger. Yeah, a producer with no credentials other than I work for the Beatles. Like, that's literally his only thing on his resume. This all, I mean, if you read about him, typically people refer to him as a roadie. Like, because that's sort of how he started. Right. Yeah. But this all helps explain why his opinion held sway with the Beatles, though, right? Because he can get them anything, right? He can do whatever they ask him to do. He'll do it. So when he comes to them and says, I think I found this band for Apple Records, uh, eventually, they'll agree. The Ivies are the first band, besides the Beatles, to put out music on Apple Records. And because Peter Asher apparently didn't think they were very good, uh, it's it, it's Mal's influence on John, George, and Derek Taylor, who's the uh, press officer at Apple, uh, that gets them signed. It, it, it is Mal. But they're not an overnight success, even though... <laughs> they've got the Apple label and they're associated with the Beatles. They, the first single is called maybe tomorrow and it does not do well. Definitely not in the U S and, and unfortunately in the UK too. And so it needs a little 
you know, magic to turn the tide here. It just and, hasn't happened yet. And now we get to be self-referential again. Uh, we get to talk about Terry Southern. Uh, hardcore fans of this show or anybody that's just blitzed the catalog recently will remember episode 120, uh, Harry Nelson versus Hollywood, where we learn that late stage Nelson left the music industry and started a film company with Terry fucking Terry Southern. Southern. Yeah, totally. And this is one of the things Southern gains some of his reputation from. He does a movie based on a book he wrote called The Magic the Christian. The Magic Christian. And it stars freaking Ringo. And he gets <laughs> McCartney to promise three songs for the soundtrack. But they don't have to be by McCartney. And so McCartney floats this spot on the soundtrack to this new signing on Apple, like any good label head would do, right? Or label, he's not a label head, a uh, label involved person trying to, trying to diversify his business interests. So he also says, I will help you produce these songs. And he gives them a song to use. Now that's pretty generous offer, but it comes with some strings. He insists on having his fingers all over this shit, including making, making each of the members... Did you know this? I read this in the research. He made each of the members of the band audition to do lead vocals. And that's why it's it's actually not Peter Ham who sings on that mm. song. Interesting. Yeah. So, basically, don't you get the Jeff Lynn vibes here? Oh yeah, yeah Essentially, yeah, yeah, yeah. he's making them sound more like the Beatles. Well, no, he very much that's is. Why he literally is. tells them, he tells them that it's quote unquote okay if it sounds like his demo cuz he had already demoed this song. <laughs> it's like it's like a weird exercise that yeah. this even happened. It, it it's a little strange. Uh but it works. 100% it works. This song goes number 4 in the UK and it's interesting though that the other thing that this Beatles association brought them and I hadn't realized this. I'm curious what you know about this. They start to distance themselves from live performance, like the Beatles did in the, in the 60s. Hmm. And they start to be focused a little bit more on creating records instead of going out and gigging all the time. And most things you read about Badfinger, if, if it was to list the things they were really good at, live performance is near the bottom. Not that they were bad, but it, their reputation is not built around them being a good live band. Now, in fairness, neither is the Beatles. Right. And, but this is like, we, we haven't like, you know, the Ivies has, has to still change to, to Badfinger. Like, this is a thing that had to happen that had to be manufactured. And this is when Mel is supposed to take a stab at producing them. But you remember this guy, Bill Collins, the manager? Mm-hmm. He's feeling a little threatened because Mal is Mal, right? I'm sure he's very affable. My my impression is that Mal is a pretty affable guy, and he was sort of the life of the party. And he's starting to become this presence with the band. So Bill's worried about job security because what he thinks is going to happen, even though you know, because Mal just can become a record producer if he wants, right? He can do whatever he wants. That he's going to become the manager, like, and they're going to kick Bill out. Like, I, I think this is mostly in Bill's head, but he's worried about it. And so he basically goes to Apple and gets Mal booted from the project. But it backfires because when they turn the album in, everybody at Apple's like, there's no hit single here. And they're like, what else do you have? So they're forced to show them the songs that Mal had worked on, and they find a tune called No Matter What. And that, our friends, is how a Beatles roadie became a hit (laughs) record producer. 
For a short amount of time anyway. Number eight in the US, number five in the UK. But there's a key thing that has to be pointed out about the timing of all this, right? So this is early 71. Now, I'm going to quiz you on your Beatles history. What significant thing happened in the Beatles camp in April of 1970, less than a year before this? We were stoned. Uh, it was the breakup. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. So Monty Python. Remember, again, being self-referential, uh, episode 86 of this show, we talked about Kingdom Come, the band that people legit thought was a secret Led Zeppelin reunion. I'm going <laughs> to tie this together. Just hold on. I, I got the guy's hair in my head. That's why I'm laughing. It's not <laughs> what you're referencing. This is a similar situation, at least to some degree. Uh, even if it's not a totally serious belief, this song sounds so much like the Beatles that fans are clamoring for it because they think uh, maybe, just maybe it's a secret Beatles reunion. Yeah, it's the shadow of the band, and it's it it sticks on them. I mean, the they is. can't they can't get away. They can't get from out from under that. Right now, we we haven't talked a ton about the individual members of this band. There are quite a few member changes throughout the history. Their best known lineup, the one we're going to sort of reference when we're talking about them, and when we get into talking about individual guys, we're going to talk about Pete Ham, who play guitar. Uh, Mike Gibbons, who played drums, Tom Evans on the bass, and Joey Molland on guitar. And as you mentioned, the Beatles break up. These guys become collaborators and co-conspirators with the Beatles individually. This is like an interesting little side note about them. Yeah, so the Beatles break up, and then (laughs) the guys in Bad Fingers start working with the individual Beatles. Like, totally, what a crazy, wacky scenario on how Apple kind of breaks up. So Hammond Evans provided backing vocals on Ringo's um, It Don't Come Easy from 71. And then Evans and Mullen performed on Imagine the and then, same year in 71. And yeah. very notably, the probably the most famous collaboration, uh, I think this was referenced in one of the letters, uh, I think Rufus said that George Harrison is involved in all this, right? He actually agrees yeah. to produce a record for them. And then... While they're pro- while he's working on producing the record, he gets distracted. And I actually think I pulled this out of the notes. But do you know who comes in, who they hire to come in and finish the record? I think this is when they, they bring Rundgren in. Oh, no, I didn't know yeah. that. Oh, my gosh. So he, he actually agrees to produce this record, gets distracted, starts to do the concert for Bangladesh, and right. tries to bring them in on that. Yeah, but ba- Badfinger is supposed to play that, uh, and then they get bumped. Because Dylan's uh, available, <laughs> and, sucks, and, and he he bumps he bumps Badfinger, and I don't you know I, I don't know what happened there. But if you know that version of "Here Comes the Sun" from the concert for Bangladesh, the other guitar yeah, that's, that's Pete Ham. That's Pete Ham playing with George. So they're they're there, and they're all over. All things must pass. So I what is it? My sweet lord, or what? One of the songs that opens with acoustic guitar. That's Pete Ham too. So they're my guys are all over the stuff, right? And they're sort of stuck in this perpetual blessing curse scenario that the, their association with the Beatles comes with, right? There's a quote from Pete Hamp talking about doing interviews in the U.S. around this time. And he says, quote, everyone who interviews us in the U.S. wants to talk about the Beatles. Uh, he says this to Melody Maker. Sure, we were influenced by them, like 10 million other groups. There are a million groups copying Led Zeppelin at the moment, but nobody bothers to criticize them for it. We like melodies and songs, and we get called the second Beatles. But they're also discovered by the Beatles, championed by the Beatles, 
and they yeah, collaborate right. with each individual beetle. So the comparison <laughs> is more apt than Pete wants to admit. I, I, I know. I was a, I was a little eye rolly when I read that. I was like, bro, like, yeah, you. This is the, this is the real struggle though, and this is back to that question that I launched at the beginning. If you're if it's the late '60s and you're a band playing the bars and covering this, you know, do you want this association? Is it a blessing or a curse? And what what a drag because you couldn't hitch your wagon to a bigger wagon. Well, right. But it's like, is the bigger wagon going to get run over? Or the, is the smaller wagon going to get run over by the bigger yeah. wagon when the bigger wagon has to stop and back up, right? I, we're taking this analogy way too far. But yes. The, so, and then the Bad Fingers, on top of all this, so forget the Beatles for a second. The Bad Fingers song that is getting popular at the time, as all this is happening, is they're just collaborating with the Fab, Fab Four and doing, you know, trying to put records out on Apple. Uh, there, there's a song that they had done called Without You. And the band didn't even like it. And they, it was like this weird conglomeration of two songs. One of them was by Pete and one of them was by Tom. And they smashed them together and came up with this song called Without You. And they like stuck it on the end of the first side of one of their albums. And this is the song where Harry Nelson gets real fucked up and hears it and decides he needs to cover it. Urban NBR, this September in Louisville, Kentucky with Bruno Mars. Killers, Black Keys, Brandy Carlisle, plus Duran Duran, Billy Strings, the Black Crows, the Avid Brothers, Blondie, and so many more. Urban and Beyond, September 14th through 17th in Louisville, Kentucky. All passes on sale now at bourbonandbeyond.com. This is where all the bad luck parts of the story that we mentioned earlier really start to happen now. And while we parse those things out, the main thing to know is that Apple's imploding, right? So that whole idea of Apple records and we're going to do this thing. The thing doesn't work and it affects the band getting music out. And then so they start to look for another label instead of Apple. I mean, and and this is where if we were talking about just the bad luck aspects of it or the bad associations part of it, like because they're in this atmosphere with the Beatles, they're also subject to the same forces the Beatles are subject to. And one of those things at this time is Alan Klein. And so there is a point where they have a record ready to go and Alan Klein just refuses to release it. This happens to them a lot. There are, if you go and look at like the discography of Badfinger now that you can find and probably find on streaming and you get confused by the dates, there's a reason for that. Because there's a lot of Badfinger material that doesn't get released until way later. Um, because they were just sort of lost to history and lost in these archives because labels refused to put them out for one reason or another. We'll get into a little bit more of this as we go. But this guy, Bill Collins, who's been managing them, remember, he's like a dude at a show who's 30 years their senior that they bring along for this ride, and he's calling all the shots. And even he starts to realize at a certain point, once they're launched into this stratosphere with the Beatles, that he doesn't really fucking know what he's doing. <laughs> and so, I mean, everybody will always sort of say, that guy was a little over his head. Um, but he really doesn't know what to do outside of the country, of of the United Kingdom and outside of England. And so they're on tour doing some stuff in the U S and he meets a guy named, uh, Stan Polly and Stan Polly at the time has been working with some other people in the music business, 
uh, Lou Christie and the guy from Blood, Sweat, and Tears and a handful of other people. Like, there was a radio DJ that he was managing. There was, like, a handful of folks in the entertainment business. And they meet, and Bill sort of, like, he gets to Bill. You know, he, he makes Bill think this would be a good idea. And this is where the bad luck and the bad decisions really meet head on. And for all of our listeners, I'd like us to take our crooked manager update <laughs> alert. Crooked manager <laughs> alert. Woo, woo, woo. Because Stan Polly apparently is in the mob. Okay, of? so kind of. Like, that's, that's maybe not exactly true, but he had some very, very strong ties. Right around this time where he this association with Badfinger happens. The New York Times starts reporting that there is a Senate investigation committee that had been formed to look into these claims about a New York State Supreme Court justice. That guy's name was Mitchell D. Schweitzer. And the rumor was at the time, now remember this is early 70s, so about 15 years before, in 1955, there was this idea that this judge might have accepted a bribe. Now, the story that starts to come out and is suggested is that there was a guy named Michael Raymond who had paid our boy Stan Pauly, this now this music manager, $25,000 in the mid-1950s, which is a lot of money in the mid-1950s. I don't know, I don't know how to figure that out. That's a lot of freaking I looked it up. It's about, it's about a quarter of a million dollars today. Gosh. So yeah. he, he pays him that much money to quote-unquote exert improper influence on Justice Schweitzer. And so when the New York Times is reporting this in 71, they talk to this guy, Michael Raymond. And of course, I mean, this, this guy is maybe not the most reliable source because his head is on the chopping block. But he says, in like quoted in the New York Times, oh, Stan Pauly is definitely connected to organized crime. <laughs> it's the life imitating art. Weird. But nothing actually comes out of this because the statute of limitations is way expired. At the time, the statute of limitations on this sort of behavior was like two years. So they had until like 57 to get them, right? It's like now 1971. But it does alert Stan Pauly's clients to the fact that he might not be on the up and up. And it's unclear if Badfinger ever really realizes this is happening because they're just sort of being swept along with this decision Bill Collins is making. But either way, Pauly, I'll say Fat Pauly, either way, (laughs) he finds them a record deal and they get on Warner Brothers. And he gets into their business day to day and he is like, listen, here's what we need to do, guys. We need to create a business entity and we're going to call it Badfinger Enterprises, Inc. Genius. Which sounds great. (laughs) And that's always the first move. Just put an ink at the end. Stan makes himself VP and he creates a system. He just basically confuses the shit out of everybody and gets them all bound up in a bunch of contracts. And you can guess who is going to financially benefit from these arrangements the most. Uh, I wonder, Brian, can we tell everyone? It also puts the band members on salary, which is a classic shitty manager move. Yeah. um, Can I just read this financial statement that Mm -hmm. we have here? This is from uh, Christmas 70 to October 71. You ready? Yeah, yeah, go for Uh, it. Salaries and advances to client. Joey Mullen, $8,339. Mike Gibbons, $6,861. Tom Evans, $6,211. And Pete Ham, coming in last, (laughs) $5,959. Net corporation profit, $24,000. Management commission, Seventy-five thousand seven forty-four. Holy Stan Polly! Shit. So he took seventy-five grand of all of the the business 
Jesus in 11 months. Christ. And, well, and those guys barely got, you know, 30, you know, 35 grand together. Supposedly, this document has Bill Collins' handwriting on it. So the band may have never seen it, but Collins did, which is its own brand of fucked. But let me just <laughs> let me do the inflation for a moment just so you get a better grasp of this because these numbers seem so small. So Joey Molland is getting paid the most. He's the guitar player. And that comes out to, in today's money, about 60 grand. So he's getting wow. paid 60 grand to be in Badfinger. Pete Ham, who was like the original member, is getting paid significantly less than him. And you have the manager getting paid what in today's money is roughly a half million dollars <laughs> in 11 months. Now, in addition to all of that, part of this whole deal with Warner Brothers involves, this is insane, and we always talk about this again. If you listen to this show a lot, this is not going to be unfamiliar, but these record labels in the fucking 70s and 80s push bands to put out so much music. This fucking deal they signed with Warner Brothers has them putting out one record every six months, two albums a year. There's the let me just let ever. me tell you something. You cannot be good if you are putting out that much music. You can't I mean you just can't. And so uh part of the other thing involved in this deal is that they are like cool for all your advances because let me just be clear this seems like a big win at first because when Stan Pauly shows up and he's like I made Badfinger Enterprises and I got you a record deal he's like this record deal is worth three million dollars or something right which again I've I've told you the inflation three million dollars is a shit ton of money in 1971 so everybody's stoked about it thinks they're you know he comes in you guys are millionaires but part of this all has to do with advances and it has to do with an escrow account that they set up that both the label and Badfinger have access to. Now, when I say Badfinger has access to it, guess who has access to it? This Stan motherfucker. Stan Pauly. Stan uh, And so basically what happens is very quickly, there's like someone at Warner Brothers that needs to access the escrow account. You know, they're, I don't know, a few weeks, a few months in. And they, they can't, go to the safe. They can't, they can't find it. They can't find the escrow account or the money. And so then they start calling Stan Pauly, and they can't get Stan Pauly to pick up the phone. Uh, it gets real fucking wild. And what eventually happens is that Warner Brothers has to file suit against Badfinger Enterprises for breach of contract. So not against Stan Pauly, but against this business entity that now involves everybody called Badfinger Enterprises. Right. So for very short script there, Warner Brothers sues Badfinger. Here's them getting sued by a label. So Paulie is trying to get the band to deliver all this output they promised to Warner Brothers. And he's been using like ideas that he's moving as fast as he can, trying to figure out what to do and wait for it. The hottest band in the world. Kiss. He hires Kenny Kerner and Richie Wise, who produced the first two records for Kiss. Really, that actually true happened. Yeah, no, because the other producer tells him no. Like, the guy they've been using is like, uh-uh, I'm not doing this. We're moving way too fast. These songs suck. Uh, but it doesn't end up mattering that we now are, we've now played Six Degrees of Separation to Kiss on any episode um, because these legal proceedings are going to tie everything up. They can't release anything new, and they can't promote what is already out. Additionally, Polly forces a fight between Warner Brothers and Apple over the publishing rights to the back catalog, and this is going to tie up shit until the mid-80s. 
Like they literally, there are court battles that go on for a decade or so. And in the Badfinger Boys, they're not getting paid anymore. Nobody's making yeah. money. Right. And depending on what accounts you read, there's there's other dynamics that that weigh on the workings of the band. And there's this woman, Joey Mullen met a woman. Her name's Kathy Wiggins when the band played in Minnesota in 71. And she starts living with the band. See if this sounds familiar, Apple label fans. And she has a lot of opinions <laughs> and the other guys don't really want to hear them. And hilariously, the Beatles comparisons even dog them in this. Like I read a piece where like one of the guys is like, she's just trying to be Linda McCartney. And I, it, dude, it's like, it pretty much sucks that you can't get away from being compared to the Beatles, even in your personal relationships. Right. And as you can imagine, so all these things are snowballing and it's getting very difficult. And Polly makes things so fucked up. They can't even get help from other business people and managers because anyone they approach gets worried about the contacts that Polly has them and contracts that Polly has them all tied up in. Well, contracts and contacts, right? I mean, this is a guy who literally people are pretty sure is in the mob. And I, I think it's a pretty open secret. And, and really taking all the brunt of this is Pete Ham. Uh, now, it, it's probably worth an official second trigger warning right here that this is about to get really rough. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot that happens here, everybody. So there's a trigger warning here for self-harm, suicide, that we're about to, things we're about to talk about. So Pete becomes the creative force face of the band, right? And he's been in the band the longest. And he feels a lot of responsibility, probably, obviously. In the midst of all of this, he's about to become a father for the first time. And as we've talked about, like he doesn't really feel like he can provide for his family because his main source of income he can't do. And people are, are noticing that he's crumbling. Like this isn't happening in a vacuum. There are stories of how he would be out with people and he'd just start like putting out cigarettes on himself. And, you know, he, he keeps trying to get a hold of Polly, much like Warner Brothers, to see if he can try to talk through this or figure this out. And, like, the dude is MIA. And it all comes to a head in April of 75. He and Tom Evans decide to get together because they're both in this pretty rough spot, right? And they're going to commiserate. They go out to a bar, and Pete drinks himself into oblivion. Uh, at least 10 whiskeys is what I read. And then Evans drives him home at 3 a.m., and in the wee hours of the morning, Pete will go into his studio in his garage, and he will hang himself. Yeah, and then he definitely he left a note. And in the note, he said, I will not, I will not be allowed to love and trust everybody. This is better. P.S. Stan Polly's a soulless bastard and I will take him with me. And then later that day, Tom had to go back and, and you know, cut the rope and, and get his body down. Absolutely. Awful. Brutal. And in May, Warner Brothers terminates their contract with Badfinger. So that's April. The next month, Badfinger has to dissolve. And then Apple deletes all of their albums from its catalog. And this isn't even it. There's more. Well, they, I mean, the guys he leaves behind are just trying to eat. So right. they start to take session work, and a couple of them join another band, but none of it lasts very long. And by 77, Mollen and Evans are both just totally out of the biz. Yeah, and this is a super sad quote that Joey Mullen says. This is He says, um, quote, Thank God I had guitars and I was able to sell some of them because we were broke, end quote. He's like laying carpet at this point, I think, and he... Uh, is literally on welfare at one point. I, I read. I mean, this is. I mean, it is really. It is drastic stuff, and all of these guys the whole time have 
well, at least a couple of them, have like millions of dollars worth of money tied up in this legal battle that's happening at Apple. And we're, I mean, we wouldn't even get into the specifics of that, but just know they're publishing rights. Like they had publishing on all these songs. We talk about publishing on the show all the time, right? They have this payday that is eluding them. And, but here's the thing. When people ask me why I love doing this show so much, why I love telling rock and roll stories, it's because on a weekly basis, I get to discover <laughs> shit like this, what I'm about to tell you. So here's a fun little side story. When all this happens, Bill Collins is left with a rehearsal space in Tin Pan Alley, like, and he's paying the bill for it. This is where Badfinger practiced, and he needs to get somebody to take it off his hands. And in the show notes, you can actually go look. This amazing blog somewhere has found the uh, Melody Maker ad from September 13th, 1975. He gets this call after he places this ad from a guy who is working as a manager in rock music, and he has just recruited this wild-ass dude to join the band he's been trying to put together. And they need a place to practice. And they need a place to practice so badly that the guy on the other end of the phone agrees to take the space sight unseen. And that guy is Malcolm McLaren. And the band who will practice in Badfinger's practice space is the Sex Pistols. Right, and you know, the crazy. <laughs> but you know what's the craziest thing is like that's so like what a fucking great story. Like what a great rock and roll story. Holy but the, you shit. know the thing. But the thing about you have to think about if we really were like one of those guys, like we were in the Sex Pistols or we were in Badfinger or something, or like that would probably happen. You know, it's like if we had, if we were Kiss and we had a rehearsal space like in Vancouver or something like. Def Leppard might come and be our first. Well, I mean, this is, it is but like at that time, but at that time, this is in the seventies. You know, it's right, like, and, right. and what kind of rehearsal space is it? And what luck yeah. would it be that that would happen? Well, by seventy nine, these guys will come back to music. Tom Evans and Joey Mullen will join a band in the U.S. and they eventually will just change the name of that band to Badfinger, which is a pretty good idea, I guess. Uh, they, that band doesn't really work. There's like a guy who used to be in Yes that's in that band for a while too. Uh, a few years later, Evans and Molland will tour separately and they will both call themselves Badfinger. <laughs> that's right. Which I could just go through the names of bands that do that now. So, but in 82, Evans and Gibbons and Bob Jackson accidentally get themselves into some bizarre shit. Now, this is the other hidden treasure in this episode. So yes. in 2009, there's a writer named Tom Matthews who is from Milwaukee, and he's written a screenplay and a couple of novels, and he got really interested in a couple of stories about Milwaukee music. So he wrote a big piece on the Bodines, and then he started investigating this story that I guess maybe he had just heard from around town about what happened to Badfinger in Milwaukee in the early 80s. Now, it's in the show notes. And it is a piece called Prisoners of Rock and Roll. And it's amazing, but I will also warn you, it is very sad. And basically, there is this dude named John Cass. And let me just read a description of John Cass from the piece. Uh, 30 years old and a lifelong Milwaukeean, Cass was eking out a living selling restaurant coupon books. And he was a huge fan of the band Badfinger. He had somehow gotten his hands on Evans's phone number in England and was certain he was the man to get the band's career back on track. So you can already tell this dude's a little delusional. 
He will later claim in a legal deposition that he had been involved in booking concerts for Journey, Little Feet, and other big-name acts in Wisconsin. He told Evans that he had a way to get his songs to Frank Sinatra. And Forget when, about it. When Evans <laughs> insisted that Cass travel to England in a show of seriousness, he complied. So impressed, Evans figured there might be a use one day for John Cass. So I'll let you read the story for time's sake, but I will spoil it in saying that John Cass ends up being a crazy person. And they, the guys in Badfinger are so desperate that they do eventually end up calling him and taking the band to Milwaukee and then literally... None of the promises that John Cass makes them come through, and so they end up not able to leave Milwaukee. And they've got family in England, they've got kids in England, like small children, uh, and they're literally stuck in the United States because they don't have cash to get out of the United States. And what he starts to do is, I mean, he keeps saying he's going to like book them on a tour. And so he gets them these gigs, and the gigs are wild. And so this piece that Tom Evans writes actually starts and opens with Badfinger playing on this like local access style horror movie show where there's like a host who's like, today's movie is blah. And, and then he's like, and today's band is Badfinger. And the guy comes out and like dances and yells while Badfinger is playing. And yes. All of this shit is on YouTube. So you can watch this. You can watch this. And it is painful. Like, absolutely painful. And ultimately, another trigger warning here, Tom Evans, after all of this, will feel like such a failure and be in such financial disarray that he... We'll start making comments about how he he would be better off if he just did what Pete did. And he will eventually hang himself outside his house and be discovered by his six-year-old child. Yeah. It's the worst. What? The worst. And remember Mel Evans. We're talking about my favorite guy in the I mean, this sphere. Is, this is the guy who gets them into the Beatles' he's, orbit. He's He's the biggest fan. He's like... He's Badfinger's biggest fan. So this is as a tragic turn, unfortunately, too. So he he after like all of this stuff, he ends up like doing a movie with Ringo like and he he jumps in the saddle with Lennon and, and, and Nielsen and Moon for the long weekend himself. So he's in part of that. He ends up getting a divorce and ends up super depressed. Um. And that really affects him. And, and he does have a, a girlfriend and have a fight and he's like inebriated on Valium. And so he's really unable to, to talk, but he has like an air rifle and it scares her. And she calls the police and the LAPD come into his home and they, in the, they go into the bedroom and he has the air rifle and they tell him to put it down and he doesn't. And the LAPD shot him and killed him. And Mel died in his home. January 5th, 1976. And that's not the end of it. So he's cremated two days later. And they lose the ashes. Holy shit. Completely. 
So Lenin finds out about it because someone asked him, like a reporter, you know, have you heard about that? And he replied, they should look in the dead letter office. <laughs> Fuck. And, and, you know, so the man who actually causes a lot of this late stage chaos for Badfinger, Stan Polly, what the hell happens to him? I mean, he clearly is a con artist and a, a, a mob member. Uh, finally, there's a little bit of justice in the late 80s. Uh, he will have to plead no contest to some charges of misappropriating funds and money laundering. And it has nothing to do with the music business. There, he had diversified really? yeah, at this r- point. Yeah. No, he gets into business with this motherfucker who's an aeronautics engineer. Yeah, they're making engines, right? Yeah, yeah they're gonna they're gonna make airplane they were, engines. They were we were going to make engines. He gets this guy to give him like two hundred thousand dollars in the late eighties, which is worth you know it's probably more than a million now. Uh, and so he is ordered to pay all that back. And this is a classic case where like you can order somebody to do something. It doesn't mean they can physically do it. Right. We've seen this in plenty of other stories um, with uh, Tony DeFreeze was an example of this where I don't think he ever came clean with the money that he owed everybody. And it sort of looks like the same thing happened with Stan Polly. So, and, and then the really sad ending to all of this is that eventually in the eighties, all of that crap around the publishing gets cleared and the estates get a bunch of money, like millions. They get Apple money. They get the Apple money. That's what you, yeah, that's what you would call it, the Apple money. So we did warn everybody, obviously, a lot of heavy stuff in this episode. This was going to be kind of a uh, heavy episode that wasn't going to be like the super duper, um, you know, barnstormer that we have sometimes. But a lot of people have asked about it. So we, I'm glad that we were able to talk about it. And Badfinger does deserve like a, a little tip of the cap because songs are really good. That's the most important part. Are you? Do you have a a, a deep cut, a Badfinger deep cut you love? Nah, I like no matter what, man. No matter what is like is flips my switch. Yeah, every time. Me too. Me I too. learned how to play that on a guitar, and I was like, ah, this is the best song ever. <laughs> if you've got a story you want to hear or a, a rumor you've heard and you want to know more about, we are the story guys at gmail.com. And do remember, we have plenty of ways for you to get uh, involved with us, uh, both in the show, uh, wearethestoryguys.com, and that email address we gave you, and on Instagram at backslash rock and roll bedtime stories. Also, if you want to support the show, patreon.com, uh, you can get outtakes from the show. We've got actually some outtakes from this episode that we will be launching there if you want to hear a little bit more about the history of Apple Records. And uh, we have extra episodes that go up uh, a few times a month that you can grab there, including uh, and also a weekly newsletter. Um, and we've got tickets for you to go to Louder Than Life and Bourbon and Beyond, a whole different music festival also happening in September in our hometown. We want to get you there. Find the links in the show notes and enjoy all of that stuff. And until next time, Murdoch, what should people keep doing? Keep telling stories, everybody. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.